Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Just to read a, a few verses in our hearing today and expound upon them. 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 13, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God, who is the giver of life, giver of, or who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or, re, or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will bring about at the proper time. He who is the, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this passage. Lord, it is so powerful. This, it is so rich. I pray, Lord, that, that we would get a glimpse of its depths, its profundity. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to us the, the, the intent of this passage. Lord, may we understand it. May we see this today. Lord, we recognize that we are, uh, we have things that, um, that kind of blind us. This is this book was written many years ago. We have uh, it was written in a different language, a different culture, a different time. And Lord, help us to get past those things. Help us to see this passage for what it really is. Lord, I, I thank you for those that are here. I pray that this would be a blessing. And Lord, may we be changed, but also uh, our lives be changed as a result. We do things differently, that we think differently as a result of today and this message. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Timothy was in a difficult situation. He's a young man. He was away from his mentor, the Apostle Paul, whom he had been with. And he was at the church, a well-established church of Ephesus. And Paul left him at Ephesus. If you look back at uh, chapter 1, he was left in Ephesus... He says, I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia. This is Paul talking. He says, when I was leaving for Macedonia, I wanted you to remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrine. So Timothy had a, a, dif a difficult situation in that he had to evaluate. He had to look at the congregation. And if there was anyone that was teaching or promoting a false doctrine, he was to confront that sin. He was to confront that false teaching. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. And, he, and Paul wasn't there. Paul said uh, in chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, Now, I'm, I'm writing these things because I might be delayed. And so, so Paul, uh, Paul is not there to, for Timothy to rely on. And, and Timothy had a really important job to do. It was profoundly important, really, is to protect the truth, the pillar and support of the truth. That's the church. And Timothy's job was to, to do that. And that, that fell upon him. And it wasn't just the church at Ephesus. This was the entire body of Christ. If teaching began to infiltrate there in Ephesus, it could spread to 
many other churches and contaminate other people, other Christians, the body of Christ. And so Timothy had to preserve that, that what was entrusted to him, this, this truth. And Timothy, and Paul wanted Timothy to make sure, he, he wanted Timothy to understand how important this role was to guard this truth. He didn't want take, uh, Timothy to take it lightly. Uh, in confronting these false teachers, anything that would con- be contrary to the truth. He wanted Timothy to not second-guess himself and second-guess what needed to be done. He wanted Timothy to fulfill his responsibility with confidence and with authority. Now, when you deal with sin in the church, when you have to deal with false teaching in the church, there's always a danger of becoming discouraged. Discouraged. And it's very easy in that situation to be robbed of your joy of ministry and, and zeal of ministry, your motivation for ministry. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 13. I just want you to see this quick verse. The author of Hebrews, and this is a verse you know, Hebrews 13 verse 17, he says, Obey your leaders who submit or, and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account Let them do so with joy. Joy. Now, here's the situation. When the word is presented and and they accept that word, they embrace that word, that that presents an environment of of grace and love in the church and and it's done with joy. Ministry can be done with joy then. Let it be done with joy. But when they are sinning, they have to confront that sin and they're not obedient... He says, uh, let them do so with joy, not with grief. For this would be unprofitable for you. It's not good for the congregation. When the the minister is is not, uh, there's no joy and motivation to do what he needs to do. And it's not good for the congregation. It's not profitable, he says, for you, even the congregation, let alone the minister. Now, so Timothy was in this situation, and it's going to be a difficult thing to do. And Paul didn't want Timothy to be robbed of his joy, robbed of his zeal of ministry to do what he needed to do. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes it's very difficult. And Paul then wants Timothy to be encouraged. He wanted to motivate Timothy to do the right thing. And he didn't do this with some shallow kind of pepperally kind of speech. Or with some practical reasons. Now here's why, Timothy. No, he motivates Timothy with proper motivation. Proper motivation for a man of God. Proper motivation for a man of God. And that is theology. That's our understanding of the God who we serve. And that's what drives the man of God. That's what drove Timothy, his theology, his thinking. Now, let me tell you, that drives everything. Now, you may doubt that. You may say, ah, no, it doesn't. It drives your theology, your understanding of who God is, drives everything about you. Now, false teachers, they were motivated by greed. They were motivated by the love of money. The the man of God was is to flee this love of money. And in contrast, the man of God has a proper, properly motivated because he has a proper understanding of God, who this God is. And that's the scenario here. And let me just say this. If there's any, ever a time 
in our church's history, in the church's history, Christendom's history, that we need a proper understanding, a proper view of God, it is today. I think our view of God is so weak. So weak. Now here's what I want you to see. You'll see it on the screen. A proper theology. That's a proper understanding of God. Proper teaching of God. If you will. Gives the believer a proper motivation to accomplish God's will. Proper motivation to accomplish God's will. Now what is the proper motivation then? And Paul lays that out for us. He answers that question for us. What the proper motivation for the man of God, what what motivates him, what drives him to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. And so Paul charges Timothy. He commands Timothy. He challenges Timothy to fulfill his ministry. And he weaves theology all through it. And he winds up in the last two verses here that we read in a doxology, in a praise to God. And and that is what encourages Timothy. That's what drives Timothy. So we'll look at Paul motivates Timothy. He gives Timothy proper uh, accountability, a proper responsibility, and then proper drive or motivation. Okay, so let's just look quickly at verse verse 13. Here's uh, Timothy's, this is a proper uh, accountability. And that's God's presence. Look at verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God. Charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Two witnesses, Paul says. And I'm going to charge you in front of these two witnesses. The word charge there is to instruct with a command. There's some authority behind it. And he brings two witnesses in. God Himself and Christ Jesus And folks, this is sobering. You get the tenor of this passage. It is not flippant at all. Paul is not not just just shallow in his little uh, speech to, to Timothy. This is profound. This is deep. This is heavy. This is weighty on Timothy. Who is isolated, kind of by himself, out in with this church, and he is having to do something that's difficult. And Paul says, I want you to be properly motivated to do so. He says, I'm going to bring two witnesses, Christ Jesus and God. And God, not just God, just in in some general sense, but this is the God who gives life to all things. Now, that's profound. That's so deep. The word gives there is not just the word creates. He doesn't just create life and just let it go. No, he is constantly sustaining life. He's preserving life. All life depends upon him. Timothy's life, his very life is in God's hands. Every breath that he takes, every time his heart beats, God is aware of that and causing that to happen. God has that kind of power, the power to to give and sustain life. This is sobering to Timothy. Timothy is he's got Timothy's attention here. This is a, a solemn charge. God is always present before you, and He holds your life in His hand. And that's just the one witness. And of Jesus Christ, He says, Jesus Christ, who gave the who testified. The good confession before Pontius Pilate. Now, Timothy had just given a good confession. If you look back in verse 12, 
Remember, Paul just mentioned this, and, and you can you can see the correlation here. He's talking about Timothy. He says, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Timothy, Timothy had to take a stand. Now, this could have been in his uh, salvation experience. Probably, though, it was it was either at his baptism or maybe his commissioning service when he was commissioned to be a missionary with Paul. And he was sent out. He took that stand as a, a witness in front of people that he would serve God. Now, Christ Jesus is our example. He did the same thing. He made the good confession. But he did this before Pontius Pilate. Look over at John chapter 18. This is what Paul is referring to. John chapter 18, verse 33. He says this, Therefore, Pilate entered into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now this is, if any time that Jesus is going to equivocate from from, uh, standing, from speaking the truth, or from his responsibility, it is now. He's been handed over to the Jews, and everybody's going to say, What is he going to do? Is he going to claim to be God? Claim to be the king? Or not. And if you skip down to verse 36, he says this. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. This is of the, the spiritual realm. It's not of this realm. It's spiritual. Therefore, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus said, now this is it, this is it. Jesus said, answered him, you say correctly, you said it, you say, that I am a king. For this, for this reason, I was born. And for this, I came into the world to testify the truth. Truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And I love that last part. Jesus was Timothy's example in front of the world, basically. Jesus took the stand. He, he committed himself to this, knowing that he will probably die as a result. Christ is the example. You need to take that stand. Now, you have already taken that stand. You need to take that stand again. That's kind of the way it is, isn't it? We, we kind of take that stand every day sometimes. But you know what? Christ never requires us to do anything that he has not already done himself. So Timothy was in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. And and Paul is giving him a charge in front of these these two witnesses. Paul reminds Timothy that he was living under the constant surveillance of God. God sees his every move. He knows his every motive. And someday he's going to give an account before God. That's sobering. That's sobering. It's not like the Christian life that we live today, is it? Our Christian life today is, oh, it's kind of light and fluffy. This is, this is sobering. This is getting Timothy's attention here. Timothy, what you're doing is very, very important. And let me just say this. That if you are disobedient in the presence of God... You should be afraid. There should be fear. But you know what? If you are obedient in the presence of God, God is always watching. If you are obedient in the presence of God, there's a a blessing. There's a joy in Him seeing what you are doing. There's a joy to that. Listen, we are accountable to God. This Christian life is real. He is always watching. He is always sustaining us. 
And someday we will give an account and we will stand before Him. Folks, that is a sobering reality. When you go throughout this week, this week coming up, you think about that. That sobering reality. Am I going to obey or am I going to disobey? Am I going to take this stand? Am I going to speak for Christ or am I just going to let it go? Let me ask you, what would God say about your life in your evaluation? So Timothy's accountability is a proper accountability. The presence of God. We all live under that. Number two, Timothy's charge or the proper charge. And that is his protection of the word from error. Look at verse 14. He says this, that you keep. Now, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God that you keep the commandment. You keep it. That's that you guard it and you protect it. You, you keep it in, in a certain state without spot or without blemish or without uh, any kind of rebuke coming upon that. Any kind of stain or reproach that may be upon it. Now, what is he to keep? He's to keep the command. Now, people misunderstand that and think, well, it's just the command uh, back in chapter 1 and verse 3, the command to confront false teachers. But I think by this time, Paul has broadened that command out, and, and he's done this, and we've seen this throughout this book. He's broadened that command out to mean the, the whole of the body of truth that was entrusted to Timothy and to the church. And we see that in just one summary. The, the church is the, the pillar and support of the truth. And Timothy is part of that. And he is to uphold that truth. And he is to guard and protect that truth. And so it's, this, is, this is probably not just a, uh, the command to, to, to do this certain act. But I think it's broader than that. To protect the truth of the, this body of truth, the Word of God. Now I say this, Paul goes on to say... That, Timothy, you are to do this until Christ come. Until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He, God, who will bring about at the proper time. Only God knows that. And, Timothy, you're going to, be, you're going to have to be faithful. You're going to have to con- commit yourself to doing this on a continual basis until Christ comes back. That's faithfulness. Until He appears. It's patient, living by faith, patiently living by faith, fulfilling your duty. Fulfilling your duty, Timothy. You have a duty. And, uh, and it's not just at the church of Ephesus. It's until Christ comes back. And so you see, it's a little bit broader. This command, Timothy, you're to protect this command. This, uh, this body of truth has been entrusted to you. And we'll see more of that, especially toward the end of the chapter. Paul knows about this, doesn't he? I mean, Paul's life has been obedient to God, protecting, preserving the truth, and properly motivated by the truth. So much so that at the end of Paul's life, you remember this, what does he say? I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I've done everything that God wanted me to do. I like what he says when he was standing before uh, King Agrippa, Paul says this, he says, I didn't prove disobedient to the heavenly vision. He says, I was obedient. God told me what to do, and I just spent my whole life doing what God has told me to do. And that's a wonderful thing. To, to be, be able at the end of your life to say, look, there was nothing that I, I left out. I did everything that God wanted me to do. Paul was able to say that, and he wanted Timothy to be able to say that. 
Sometimes what keeps us accountable is just simply the sense of duty. The sense of duty. Now, I believe sometimes our churches, we don't sense that. We don't have that sense of duty, that sense of responsibility of what we are supposed to do. We kind of lose focus. We become somewhat lukewarm. Our eyes get focused upon ourselves. Ourselves. Oh, what am I supposed to do? What am I? And we kind of uh, turn it over to somebody else. And, and we kind of uh, make ourselves out to be the victim in some way. And, and we just consume all the attention. And boy, I, I wish I could serve, but I just can't serve. And, and God's work doesn't get done. We have a debt, the Bible says, a debt of love. We are to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we're to love man. We have a debt of love to man, to mankind. And we are to be fulfilling that debt. Timothy had a charge from God Himself to fulfill this, His ministry, to protect this Word. We have a duty, all of us, has a duty before God that we will be accountable to God for. And sometimes it's just that sense of duty we just get up. We just do what we're supposed to do. But, but look at this. Timothy or Paul doesn't just stop there. He, he gives Timothy just some proper motivation. Just, just something that's going to enrage Timothy's heart. Inflame Timothy's heart. And motivate Timothy to do what he needs to do. And that is the God that he serves. So we see t- Timothy's proper motivation or his drive. And he gives us four characteristics of this, uh, of this transcendent, this incomprehensible God. And it's the, the He, he says. And he will bring about. And He, and just, He kind of just waits there. He who is the blessed. He who is the blessed. And He, and he introduces a, a kind of a doxology, just a, a praise to God. Tim, and Paul often does this. I like what John Kitchen, one of the commentaries that I read concerning First Timothy. Here's what he says. He says, Paul, as it were, were taking Timothy by the arm and ushering him into the presence of God who controls his very breath and who commands his next heartbeat. And there, before his face, before God's faith, face, he issues this charge. You get the sense, you get the sense that this is important? Right in the presence of God. Look who we are serving, Timothy. Look at our God. That drives us. That motivates us. And He is blessed. Now, don't make any more out of that word than should. This means happy. It means content. It means complete within Himself. Self-sufficient, self-sustaining, self-satisfying, self-satisfied, fulfilled. God is all of that. MacArthur says this, it describes, talking about this word, it describes a lack, a lack of unhappiness, a lack of frustration and anxiety. God doesn't have any of those. He goes on to say, he is content, satisfied, at peace, fulfilled, perfectly joyful. While some things please him and other things do not please him, nothing alters his heavenly contentment. That's good. That's good. And that's good for us. God is, is happy. He is blessed. He is content. We're not that happy. 
It is just hard living in this earth. And it's because we need to direct our unhappiness. We need to direct our attention to the, to the right thing. Our sin has caused us to be unhappy. It's sin. It's our own sin. It's sometimes the sin of other people. Sometimes just the sin of the world around us. But it's sin. That's the enemy. It causes us to not be happy. But yet we continue on with it. But here's what I say. Those who enter into a relationship with God enter into what the Bible calls His rest. His rest. Our union with God. We become the blessed ones. We enjoy His His contentment. We enjoy His peace. We enjoy His happiness. And we cannot be happy apart from Him. There can be peace and joy here on this earth. In spite of the sinful condition. In spite of the the trials that we have. But it's only with our union with God. The God who is happy. The God who is content. And Timothy will never be blessed. Timothy will never be uh, content when he is trying to please man. He will only be blessed when he is trying to please, please God. So he's saying, Timothy, be careful about compromising. Your happiness comes from this God. He is the blessed God. The blessed. There's an article there. There's a lot to that, but I've got to move on. He is the blessed. He is the only sovereign, Paul says. Sovereign is just control. Just the influence. He is the the dominant influence. He is the only true God. The only true and living God. God's power is innate within Himself. It was not delegated to Him by anyone else. By some outside source. He is the King of all kings. He is the Lord of all lords. And all authority derives its source from Him. He is the, he is the ultimate. He is the, the sovereign. In Romans chapter 13, uh, Paul reminds us that no authority exists apart from God. God allows them to have the authority. It comes from Him. Isaiah says, actually this is God quoting, this is from uh, Isaiah quoting God Himself. He says, I act. God acts. He does things intentionally, deliberately, purposefully. He says, I act. And who can reverse it? Who can overturn it? Who can come up against it? No one. No one. MacArthur says uh, this, he says, because he is in total control, there is no need for Timothy to worry or to compromise or to equivocate or to manipulate to, to reach his goal. If God's in control, Timothy can rest in that. He can rest in that. God is sovereign. Sometimes we forget that. We need to remember that God is the God who is in control of our life. He's the one that gives us strength. He's the one that sustains us. He is the one to be feared. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the one who is the sovereign over all. Number three, He is also immortal. This God that we serve is also immortal. Look at verse 16. And who alone possesses immortality. Immortality. The quality and state of never dying. How would you like to have that? 
the quality and state of never dying. He is incapable of dying. He is deathless, someone said, not able to die. John Kitchen again goes on to say, God alone is untouched by sin and therefore the only immortal being in the universe. Sin has not touched him. His rule, he goes on to say, his rule cannot and will not be threatened by death. He possesses within himself the power and the prerogative of self-existence. He just exists. That's who he is. The psalmist said, for with thee, O God, is the fountain of life. John says, uh, actually it was Christ, John quoting Christ. Christ said, the Father has life in Himself. Now think about that. Folks, that is far beyond us. We, we cannot even comprehend that. We fear death. God does not, He's not threatened. He doesn't fear death. Isaiah said He's a, an everlasting God. God had no beginning. He had no end. And all life depends upon Him And God is not limited to this physical world. He is not contained here in this physical world. He is outside of history. He is above time and space. And Timothy is to be content with that. And there is no real threat. Timothy is to be content with the the fact that there is no real threat to God's kingdom. He is immortal. Nothing can hurt him. Nothing can hurt him. When we unite ourselves with him, when Timothy is doing his bidding, he can go up against Satan, the gates of hell, everything else. And he will survive if God wills. Number four, he is a God who is holy. Middle verse 16, and dwells in unapproachable light. He's talking about his holiness, his purity. Whom no man has seen or can see. Listen, that's a, an environment we don't know anything about. We live in such, we live in sin. And it's hard for us to understand this transcendent, totally holy, set apart God. It's beyond us. And God is inaccessible to man. Man cannot reach Him. Unless, unless God reveals Himself, unless God takes the initiative, man is distant from God. God lives in this environment of purity, far too holy for mortal people to enter. The psalmist says, no evil dwells with thee. He goes on to say, clothed in majesty and splendor. That's our God. The way it's stated in the New Testament, John, he just says this. He says, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. I'm afraid that we have a casual view of God today. Kind of a... a, 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 We emphasize His friendliness and His, His love, His lightness. The author of Hebrews says He's a consuming fire. He is to be revered. He is to be feared. We have to remember that when we go in to pray to Him. We have to remember that when we approach Him in worship. We do worship the way He wants to be worshipped. We revere Him. We've made, we've made, I think, Him so personable that He is, is nothing special. There's no uniqueness. There's no holiness there. There's no grandeur. There's no splendor. 
Um, Todd Friel, he says this. Now, Todd Friel is a little... He has a radio program, I think it's a, maybe even a TV program called Wretched Radio. He's a Christian, and he is really out there, but he is solid. Solid guy, but here's, here's what he says. Jesus has indeed made his enemy his friends, but he never intended him to be your knock-around chum who exists to be your BFF or your bestie. Now, the younger people should recognize those terms. He's not just your, your best friend. He's not just, oh, you're, you're pal. Oh, man, God, oh, we're just pals. Listen, He is to be revealed. He is holy. He is distant. And Timothy needed to be reminded that God is uncorrupted by sin. His judgments are never flawed. His motives are always pure. And His thinking is never clouded by emotions. He never slips up. He is he is holy. He is a holy God. How do we respond to this? I mean, what do we do? I mean, okay, we get this glimpse of God and who He is and this profundity, but yet, here's what Paul says. Here's how we respond. To Him. To Him be all honor. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. To Him be eternal. This, there's only one response. And that's, we, we submit ourselves to a life of worship of this God on a daily basis. This is what drives us. He demands all eternal dominion. He has it. it. All honor goes to Him, Timothy. That's what drives us. That's what compels us to do what we do. Now let me just make an observation here. How you, how a person lives, how you live, how we live, reflects what we really believe about God. That's our true theology. Now, we think that it's a doctrinal statement that we just sign, okay, here's what I agree to, and that's my doctrine. No, doctrine really is what you live out on a daily basis. The way you live, that shows what you really believe about God. It's our theology. It either motivates you or you just don't care. You just don't. It doesn't motivate you. And let me tell you, if this passage does not motivate you, you need to become more acquainted with this God. Proper theology gives the believer a proper motivation to accomplish His will. Let me ask you today, how big is your God? Let's put it another way. How small is your God? Do we have just a weak, wimpy, small God who cannot do anything? Folks... No, we serve a God who is blessed, who is all-sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is immortal, who is completely holy and unique unto Himself. And we have to approach Him lightly, carefully. And yet He re- reveals Himself to us and welcomes us in. But He is a big God. We never forget that. Never forget that. The author of Hebrews says, The Lord, He is my help. I will not be afraid what man shall do with me. If, if, we, if we are united with God, and then we, we are blessed. We are on His side, the one who controls the universe. Paul wants Timothy to see that. He wants Timothy to, to have that vision, this, this driving uh, understanding of who this God is. And he wanted Timothy to fulfill his 
duty, his responsibility based upon who this God is. And when we have a proper motivation, it causes us to, to be encouraged, doesn't it? This is our God. It brings us joy. It brings us confidence. It allows us to discipline ourselves, sometimes far beyond what we think we can do. Because we, we're driven by this understanding of who our God is. He is capable God. Sometimes to extreme measures, even in the face of trials. Proper motivation can do that. It stimulates us. It stimulates us to fulfill our duties and responsibilities and to do them with, with joy. With joy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you that, that you arranged the circumstances for Paul to write this letter to Timothy and inspire uh, Paul, superintend this word through the Holy Spirit to, to Timothy. To Timothy, this, this young man who is facing some difficulties. He needed to be encouraged. Lord, sometimes we need that encouragement. Today, this week, this month, we, we will need that encouragement. Lord, help us to keep our eyes upon you. Help us to understand who you are. Lord, help us to never have a weak, small view of you. Lord, may it be a true representative, a representation of your character. Lord, we are so dependent. We recognize that. Lord, we recognize that, that we live with with your presence every day. And sometimes we forget. And sometimes we, are, we sin. And Lord, we're broken because of it. And Lord, we, we have to remember too that you're kind and gracious and loving. But Lord, you're always God. So profound. Thank you for your love. Thank you for loving us. And allowing us into a relationship with you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you to stand. Thank you for your good attention. This is profound words, folks. This is beyond my ability to communicate. Um, profound words. We have to have a right theology. We have to have a right understanding of our God. And when we do, we are motivated. We are driven. Father, thank you for... Your grace. Thank you for the drive, the, the burning fire that we have in our bones to know you more, to love you, and to serve you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.